Support for Class Dismissed comes from School Status. School Status helps educators at every level take control of student data for increased outcomes and meaningful stakeholder engagement. Find out more at schoolstatus.com. You are listening to Class Dismissed, episode 188, and I'm your host, Nick Ortego. A teacher union survey gives us an idea on what percentage of educators are scheduled or have already received a vaccination, and why lawmakers in Texas are considering a law that could protect teachers from bullying parents. Stay with us. Class Dismissed is the podcast that inspires educators through story. Each week, we cover some of the hottest topics and news in the world of education. Plus, we hear from a guest with a bright idea for education that you can apply in your community. This week, YA fiction author Gerald Hoover tells us his story of perseverance. Stay with us. Hello, everybody. Nick Ortigo here, and I'm joined by friend, principal, and co-host Christina Pollard. Christina, how are you doing today? I am not going to complain. It doesn't get us anywhere. (laughs) <laughs> right. right. I, I hear you. I mean, we're, we're continuing to move along through this school year. It's different for different people in different parts of the country. Some folks are just starting to go back in person. Others have been in hybrid. Some are going traditional. It just kind of depends on and, where you are. So, so I and know some of us have been face to face the entire school year. Right. Which kind of leads me to um, something I saw and hit a few different newspapers um, over the past day or two. And it was about the number of teachers that have been vaccinated. And of course, the only way they could really get this number um, was through like a union survey. So um, a teacher's union did a survey of their members to see how many people. So what percentage of educators do you think have been vaccinated thus far? Oh, I'm going to say it's got to be a low number, maybe 15%. Okay. So this survey suggests that 80% have either been vaccinated or are scheduled to be vaccinated. Would, and I didn't include that. Would, if, if we said scheduled, I don't know if you'd bump your number up a little bit. but you th- I would have. Yeah. I would have. But but you think, though, it, I mean, you only know from kind of, I guess, whispers around your building or whatever, people who are willing to talk about it, um, I guess, would you say that you think eight in 10 of your teachers are either scheduled or have already been vaccinated? I would say yes, especially the scheduled portion, because that has been something difficult, I think, for everyone um, for class coverage or um, and in some instances, um, thinking about the wait time. Some of them have experienced long periods of wait. Um, Some of them were scheduled and we've had multiple weather days where um, appointments were canceled. Even for my second shot, it had to be uh, rescheduled because of weather. And it was like a week later. So. Um, but completed absolutely having both shots done. I thought it would have been a low number. Yeah, probably as how so. We waited so long for them to open it up to teachers, but I also didn't, I also didn't think about, we also are in the spring break cycle. So maybe a lot of people were able to get appointments during their spring breaks. Yeah. I know where we are in Mississippi. Uh, I've seen a lot more people my age now um, posting online that they've been vaccinated because we are now open um, from anybody 16 years and up. Um, here's the other interesting part of that survey. And again, this is again, just one survey of, of a group of educators. So it may not be super accurate, but it said that of the educators who have not been vaccinated, or at least don't have an appointment, which was right around 18 to 20%, about half of those said they have no plan to get a shot at all. 
citing hesitancies about vaccines or lack of research or just desire for more information. So that means basically about 10% of the total educators in the survey will not be vaccinated. And that's scary if they're going to continue to provide services in a school. Um, And of course, we have to consider the information recently released about the different variants. And the most popular one um, that is taking over in Europe is also taking over here in the States. And, um, you know, from what I've read, the vaccinations will protect us. And I think one more thing that is a concern for me are those who are only um, receiving one of the two shots. I mean, we know that the the research behind the vaccinations are saying the booster shot, the second shot is extremely important. Um, And then those who are still on the fence because they are, you know, concerned about whether it's, you know, healthy or not, or they're listening to conspiracy theories. If you're going to serve in a school, you have to really think about whether you're putting yourself at risk or your family. And then I'm just really hopeful that we can begin to give vaccinations to children under the age of 16 before 2022. Because if we look at the most recent data released, young people um, are the ones involved in the surges happening right now. Right. Well, you know, this morning I was on my Facebook feed and there's a friend of mine who's an educator and he had posted something online that was, you know, your typical like photo with a bunch of words printed on it. And it's like, are you aware that all vaccine makers worldwide have been given a free pass from any legal prosecutions regarding any death or injuries caused by new vaccines? And and it's like, I understand that some people out there um, will have concerns about the vaccines. I wish if you have those concerns... I I guess keep them to yourself. Like maybe don't post misinformation online and, and discourage other people from making that decision on their own or I don't know. So that's, that's kind of bothered me a little bit to see that, but I guess that person's clearly in the uh, 10% of educators that will not get vaccinated. That's true. And they probably feel the same way about those of us that advocate for it. Um, So, you know, to each his own, we all have our opinion, but at the end of the day, I just think we all need to do what is best and safe Um, for those that we live with and those that we serve um, in our school buildings. Right. Let's uh, move off the uh, topic of COVID for a second. We're going to switch over to, you know, we're in that time of year where um, state legislators are still meeting and they're kind of, you know, tossing out different ideas for laws. And there was one law over in Texas that kind of caught my eye in the world of education. Um, And it was dealing with the idea of almost forcing school districts to make policy that would mandate provisions that would address bullying of a teacher by a parent. And I'll let you chime in in a second so you can say, like, we don't see this or we do. But in the article, this person who was advocating for this to the legislators was saying parents are threatening. They come up to the school. They say, you're not going to give my child this grade. Um, They do it online. They do it during school drop-off car lines. Um, and they say that teachers are often approached um, with parents who are very aggressive and bullying about certain things. Do you do you ever really see anything like that? I have absolutely seen that um, in my career, and it's unfortunate. And what we have to remember is that they don't truly understand um, policies. They clearly don't understand um, the services that we're providing and the instructional the instruction that we're providing for children every day and what role that they need to play and that we don't give grades, students earn grades. And I think a lot of times as a mom myself, I have prided myself in not putting pressure on teachers and not calling the school. I mean, and I'll give you a great example. Um, we had a teacher who, you know, she may not have 
posted her assignments on time and gave children, you know, appropriate amounts of time to do the assignments that she's been posting. Um, and that is frustrating. And then if a child turns in something late, then that child was held accountable. And in an instance, speaking of my own son, he earned an 89 in a class that he should have had an A in Mm -hmm. um, because of two late bell ringers, not class assignments, not assessments, not major projects, but bell ringers. And, you know, I told my son, I wanted him to learn from overcoming adversity to understand the importance of meeting deadlines. He's going to need that skill um, when he goes to college. But at the same time, I expressed to him that that's just, that just was not a battle or a hill I was willing to sit on. Mm -hmm. Um, But I know parents who have, you know, erupted for the smallest of things. And think about when you're calling for discipline concerns, when you're calling to get help and they chew you out and give you choice words over the phone, or they come to the school threatening to physically harm you. Um, Yeah. I've I've seen all of that in in different school districts and, and, and discussed it with, you know, many educators. And at the same time, we have to make sure on the educator side that we are being transparent, that we are providing, um, you know, quality information uh, up front and often, and that we're trying to build positive relationships with our parents. So, you know, it's a two-way street. It is, no doubt. This, this bill, Texas House Bill 256, it would require school district employment policies to include anti-bullying measures to address bullying in the workplace. So in other words, like it's going to put the the burden on the actual school district to figure out like how we do this, but it's saying it's required to do it. Um, somebody brought up in this particular story, um, which was out of Houston on KHOU 11, and um, they said, you know, well, can't school districts, you know, do the same thing? Can't they put this policy in place? And they were like, yes, they can, but we feel like it, it will kind of force their hand to do it sooner than later if it's done at the state legislative level. So um, that's kind of where they are here. I don't, I don't know if you feel well, like, yeah, go ahead. I'm a little confused. I, I, while I understand they want to put focus on it and they want to, you know, have schools address it, let's be realistic. Other than the professional etiquette or behavior that we expect of any visitors on campus and any employees on campus, Putting a board policy in place saying that schools or districts must address it. In which way are they <laughs> providing specific? You yes, know, are they exactly. providing specific guidance? Is there a program they want us to implement? Is there a work- workshop they want us to provide? Are um, are they identifying speakers or <laughs> gurus of it's, you know parent appropriate parent support? We can't yeah. tell parents what to do. Well, so I, I think you just raised the ultimate question, which this is such a, I hate to knock state legislators. No, I don't. Um, you know, they, they do this thing where they'll say like, oh, we want you to do this. And this is popular and this will get headlines. But like, okay, like you said, h- how do you do this? Now, let's let's talk about that for a second. How could you reduce bullying of parents to teachers? Like what steps could you put in place? I guess in my mind, one thing that you could possibly do is say if there is a confrontation between a parent and a teacher then um, that could be referred to some sort of like mediation type committee. Like you may have like a mediator in each school or for each but, district where maybe like. But I'm even, mm, but I'm even concerned with the word confrontation. Mm-hmm. So it can't become a confrontation unless both parties engage. And if both parties engage, then we're talking about employees that are stepping out of character. That mm-hmm. is handled not with parents. That is handled in-house. 
Now, if you have a parent that is irate and uses profanity and threatens, I'm I'm not trying to have a mediation. You're going to be banned from my campus. Okay. Yeah. Well, and maybe you know, like and maybe we, that's it. Maybe it <laughs> allows them to ban people from campus. That's that whole point. Because what I envision is, let's just take the car line scenario. Like, you know, you're you're driving de- through the car line and you see, you know, your child's math teacher, and you roll down the window, and like you said, profanity. Parents yelling at him, "Hey, you can't give my child that effing, you know, grade," and blah blah blah. Mm-hmm. You know, and so that all takes place. What next? Like, what can a school do? And like you said, possibly ban a parent from the campus. Well, I think the very first steps is you have to think about if there's an administrator on duty, if there's an SRO on duty to move that parent through the car line. If and when that that is not successful, clearly we have the support of the local police department because you're you're in your vehicle, you're in a car lane, you're on you're on our school campus, you're not in the building, but you know you need to move along. You're holding up traffic. That that there's some different violations that could be um, identified there. As a principal, I think the next step would be, well, I need to call that parent and find out what she's upset about. So not putting a mediation situation uh, on the table, but yet giving that parent the platform to appropriately share here's her concerns and provide some evidence with what you're accusing a, a teacher of doing. And then, of, of course, an administrator would need to take appropriate steps to investigate, check the child's grades, the attendance, mm-hmm. class atmosphere, whatever the parent is complaining about, and then get back to the parent about what you can do to rectify it. And in the case of a child receiving a failing grade, your child earned that grade, whether it was poor performance, um, lack of attending school, or not doing the assignment, say it's a zero, then I have to stand by that teacher and support it. And then that's when it goes further. Most most times they, they skip the principal and they go directly to the central office. It is hopeful though, that your central office will send them back to the principal so that you can follow appropriate protocol. Mm-hmm. But let's switch to the term you said confrontation. Suppose a parent does pull up um, in car line, uses profanity, threatens a teacher, and the teacher then steps out of character and goes toe-to-toe with the parent. See, that's a completely different situation. And you would need to, one, get the parent removed from the campus. Two, you'd have to bring that employee in because somewhere in there, either the code of ethics or a school board policy will have been violated. Mm -hmm. And see, that's handled completely differently. And then next steps, if you want to create harmony, would be to try to align those two. One, so the parent's requests or needs or concerns can be addressed. Two, you have to address the parent and how they handled that teacher and then find some commonalities and try to rectify the situation. Because at the end of the day, this is all about a child's needs. You know, this is about whether this embarrassed the child, you've escalated the situation. Um, I just think there's a better way to, to, to solve those types of problems going, you know, out into the community and, and, speaking negatively and inappropriately about a staff member, uh, cursing them, coming to the school to threaten them. What are you teaching your children? Oh yeah. Yeah. That's, that's inappropriate. But at the same time, you know, you want to talk to your staff members about appropriate behavior too. And I just think that there's a better way to handle it. And let's, let's just say that the Texas legislators are not seeing um, appropriate actions being taken, whether it's towards the parents or towards staff members to find harmony in the work that they are supposed to do to serve kids in their community, then I understand them putting something in place to make districts or administrators understand that there is a problem. But at the end of the day, I think that it takes all stakeholders to, you know, have a positive uh, 
relationship and, and a school atmosphere. And I don't think that legislators can dictate how you communicate to parents unless they truly want to provide some support resources. And of course, you know, I'm going to say, and where's the funding for this? Right. Well, and you know, it, it all comes down to the point here that it takes people like you who are on the front lines to to actually figure out how to do this, um, how to solve this. So yeah, I guess it, you could say it's a little um, shooting from the hip by the Texas state legislators to say, we're going to fix this problem with just, you know, a couple of lines that say the employment policy must include anti-bullying measures to address bullying in the workplace, including provisions to address the bullying of a teacher by a parent. Like, what does that mean? So again, we'll, we'll see how I this think it's out. leaving it up to interpretation for all of us, because maybe some schools are not experiencing that. You may have a parent that calls and they're irate on the phone, but at the end of the day, I think parents just want to be heard. We don't know what they're going through. We don't mm-hmm. know what what's happening in their homes and they're trying to support their children. And if they feel that, you know, we're not supporting their kids, we're not helping their kids and we're making their home life worse. We just need to, I mean, one thing that I've shared all year long, and it's just, you know, one word, one single word, extend people grace. Mm-hmm. I, I, I share with my staff all the time. We've got to extend our kids grace. They are kids. They're going to turn things in late. They're going to make bad choices. Sometimes choices they make are out of their hands. You know, we don't know what their parents are directing them to do. We have to show parents grace. We don't know what they're going through, loss of jobs in this. We said we weren't talking about COVID right now, but, you know, think about what a lot of families have gone through with with COVID. And then, of course, with teachers, they have an unbelievable responsibility teaching children that don't belong to them in settings with resources and funding and here we go, uh, legislative decisions, board policies that are out of their hands, not in their control. Mm-hmm. Well, and you know, I, I got to hand it to um, one of my old bosses, Joe Scortino. He was the general manager at the TV station that I used to work at. And, you know, we would get a lot of irate phone calls, as you would imagine, when you when you run a TV station. And he taught me a trick. He says, you know, you know, the best way to get somebody to calm down when they're upset about something is just shut up and listen. Just let them talk. Yeah. And it, it usually if you let somebody vent for three, four or five minutes, by the time they get everything they have off their chest, they're so much easier to talk to. Um, so, you know, just sometimes if you have an irate parent, I think sometimes the best thing is to, to let them mm-hmm. be irate for a second. You know, you don't want to be inappropriate. Yeah. But, yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and, and after they're irate, make sure you've written down some of the key things that they are upset about mm-hmm. and repeat it back to them. Mm-hmm. So what I hear you saying is right. you, you, you've tried to communicate, you've sent emails, you know, you haven't had a call back, you've requested a parent conference and that hasn't happened. Your child now does not want to come to school. And did I interpret that correctly? Well, if anything, the Texas law gets us, um, makes us a discussion. And I think that's a good thing. So, uh, yeah, Christina, are you ready for today's bright idea? Oh, I'm, I'm really excited about it. Our guest in today's Brad Idea segment has been on a lifelong mission encouraging youth to live their dreams, and he's accomplished this much through his writing. Gerald Hoover is the author of the Hero Book series. The Hero Book series is a group of young adult fiction geared toward young black men ages 12 and up. And his first title in the series, My Friend, My Hero, has actually become recommended reading in many classrooms throughout the country and the world. Gerald, welcome to Class Dismissed. Happy to be here, my friend. Happy to be here. Thank you. Uh, we're excited to have you here. And and before we, we dig too much into all of this, help our listeners, if they're maybe not familiar with the Hero Book series, please give us like an overview of, of it, if you can. 
Sure. Uh, well, when you say lifelong, you, you, you weren't exaggerating. Uh, this book has been with me since I was 17 years old, and, and I am now 55. Literally, wow. it's been with me for that long. The first nine drafts I wrote were by hand because I didn't have any uh, writing utensils. And, of course, we didn't have laptops and computers back then in 1983. And um, the premise of this book started actually from a speech that I wrote. Because uh, unfortunately, my dad, who's no longer with us, um, his side of the family were really besieged with drugs and alcohol. And uh, my dad was a heroin addict and an alcoholic, so he was really pretty messed up. And he he ended up leaving this earth at forty three. Mm, uh, but he suffered, you know, greatly, you know, because of that before before he left. Um, so I wrote a speech, and I wrote it as a seventeen year old, and I was writing a speech to implore other young men and women. Um, to not do drugs and alcohol. And, and who, who is that speech for? Like, who are you going to deliver it to? And, you know, so funny, that's where this comes in. I wrote the speech, right? I think I was just getting something off my chest. But, of course, we didn't have, well, I didn't know about fax machines back then because I don't even think we had them back then. But, you know, of course, we didn't have social media. There was no platforms for me to put this out. Also, I, was, uh, I had a stuttering problem. I still stutter, believe it or not, but I had a speech impediment. So I knew I wouldn't be giving that speech, not unless I tried to read it, but that wouldn't have been effective either because I would have been too shy to do it. Mm -hmm. So I had no platform to do it. So this speech was written, say, in mid-1983. Uh, and all of a sudden, I'm starting to get a premonition or, or thought. And I, I, I always say it's God-centered because there's no way in the world I'm doing this now if it wasn't. And so the idea came to me to put characters behind the speech and allow one of the players or one of the uh, 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 actors in the book to give the speech at some point in the book and let it play out from there. And lo and behold, Nick, the journey started, I would say, in June of 1983, where now I'm getting like besieged in my uh, thoughts. I mean, I'm getting like just, just it was like an avalanche of thoughts. The, the title of the book, the character of the, of the, uh, of the, of the per person and people, what I would do with them. Now, mind you, this is before I even started writing anything. Mm -hmm. I would just, the ideas were just coming to me like a movie. And all of a sudden, I started writing, started writing, started writing. And then from October 17, 1983, I started putting pen to paper. And from that time then, I'm doing this now. Now, the first book, of course, is My Friend, My Hero. The second book is called He Was My Hero 2. The third book is A Hopeful Hero. And the fourth book is Hoop Hero. And, uh, of course, you see that each book has the word hero embedded in the title. And that's by design as well, because the, the thought behind that is when young men and women see the characters on the cover, they'll see themselves in it. And believe it or not, it's not just for black boys or girls. This is mm -hmm. for everyone. And it's been proven that the book, because the book is in Germany, it's in China, it's in other countries that young men and women read it because they can relate to it. Because well, and, you, and you've had the success with this book, but I, I noticed that you, you were, you admit that you were actually rejected several times when you went to publishers and editors on the front end, huh? My friend, when you talk about several times, it's like I got rejected 42 times from 1984 to 1992. Wow. I mean, I mean, 42 times. Now it was from agents Editors, lawyers that represented writer uh, or, or publishing houses, mm -hmm. and also editors. But you know what was crazy, except for maybe the lawyers, because they didn't really give me too much of a, uh, an analysis. But everyone else told me how good the book was. That that was the mysterious part of it, Nick. Everybody was telling me your book was great. 
It's thought-provoking. It's timely. I mean, they were telling me this all throughout the eighties and nineties. So, until so what was the hang-up? Do you feel? Do you think they were just saying there's not a a market for these type of books? This you know, young adult fiction. You know what? You said it basically almost word for word. It would say, unfortunately, it's not right for our list. Of not not right for our market. Whatever. Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking like, what is this list market they're talking about? So one day, Nick, I kid you not, from Mount Vernon, New York, I, I took a bus up to a place called White Plains, New York, which was about a, about a good 45 minutes to an hour ride. And I went to a bookstore by the name of B. Dalton because I'm aging myself now because there's no- I, I remember that. Yeah, I remember right. B. Dalton. So I went to B. Dalton bookstore. So I walked in and I made a beeline for the young adult section to see what's this list all about because I'm thinking, I'm trying to figure out what are they talking about. Now, when I got there, I'm looking at the books on the shelf and I didn't see any books with my color face on it. Like for those that's listening, I'm African American. Okay, right, right, <laughs> um, right, right. I didn't see any books with black boys or girls' face on it, except for mm-hmm. one, and the, that book was called Just Like Martin, and it was written by the late great Archie Davis. I ended, I, I ended up buying the book too because I wanted to read it and see what it was about. But the books that I saw either had girls on it, or maybe hot, maybe Nancy Drew Hardy Boys or highlights. So it really wasn't a section for young African Americans. But but hit, but that's why I got insulted because I'm thinking like my book is not just for black people. I'm sharing a black experience, but right. no more than the movie Good Time, the, the, the TV show Good Times, or or Cosby or whatever. I'm you're just showing you know you're sharing you're sharing an experience. It, right, young, young black males read the Hardy Boys and it can go yeah. the other way, right? That, that, that's my point, Nick. I'm like, so I got insulted. So now I, I put in my mind. Now, now, mind you, I'm still I'm probably I'm probably in rejection 25 at this point. I said, when the book is published, I didn't say if. I said, when this book is published, I'm going to make it so that schools will eat it up. So what I did was I put essay questions at the end of the book. I, I, and Nick, I, this was the, a God-centered uh, uh, a premonition or, or idea because. I, my thought process was, okay, I don't have any profanity in here. I don't have any N-words in here. I might, I might call anybody, you know, out of a, out of a race or nothing like that. I might be racially discriminatory. Um, and I don't have any crazy sexual content in it. So it, it but it's not a, it's not a, um, ABC, you know, child's book, if you would, but I just told life as it was without using dirty language. And so I said, this book can pass the test of schools. I know it could because my thinking is, Young boys and girls are in schools. Young boys and girls are in churches. Young boys and girls are in community-based organizations. So my thought process was put the essay questions in the back of the book. Also put symposium questions for uh, family literacy. I mean, I was thinking like this as a young twenty-year-old. Yeah, so, that's yeah, that's great. That's brilliant. Right? And my mom, my mom to this day swears that I started this trend, right? And so my thought process is, again, when the book is published, let your school, let the schools be the market. And that's what happened. Once I finally got published, Nick, schools became my, 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 uh, my feeding and breeding ground. Well, t- well, tell me about that, that tipping point with the publisher. Like, who took a risk on you? Uh, oh, oh, man. It was a publisher by the name of UBUS Books. And it was a black-owned publisher in Virginia, incidentally, uh, Nick. <laughs> he was out of Hampton. He was out of Hampton. But he had no connection to me because he was in Virginia. He just was, that, that's just where he was from. So right. um, I can't remember how, he, how I even heard of him, but I sent him a copy of my manuscript. He sends me a letter. Oh, we talk on the phone, too. He says, okay, I will, he said, I will make a deal with you. I will publish up. I will publish 1,000 books if you can sell 500 copies or promise me you can do that. 
And I'm like, what? So, so I, I had him repeat that again. And Nick, I had him send me that in writing because I'm like, this is too good to be true. I done, I've been rejected 47 times already. Right. You got to put this in writing. So when he sent he sent it to me in writing, Nick, I'm going to tell you so funny because I've, I've been so shell-shocked by, by getting rejection letters. Right. When, when the letter came to me, I didn't open it for like two or three days. Oh, man. I, li- I mean, I mean, you would have thought that I would have just tore it open like like with my teeth, right. man, you know? I didn't even, I didn't touch it. I put it right I put it right on the table, and I just I had to get the nerve to say, okay, this is for real. So when I got it, I you know, got the letter, I opened it. I mean, I, I had to got the courage to open it. I did, read it, and he said what he said. I said, okay. Now, here's my thinking now. Now, now I'm putting on my thinking cap. Now, I, I'm from the projects, right? Uh, as I told you offline, me and my buddy JB Smooth, who's 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 a star of a lot of shows out here, Curry Enthusiasm is one of them. Uh, we live in the same project buildings, and it was, it's a tenement building of five, five buildings that had one hundred tenants each. So my thinking, my thinking now, Nick, okay, there's five hundred people, five hundred families in each, uh, in, in, for these five buildings. Mm-hmm. I go to a big church, a lot, a large church congregation. I have a pretty big family. So now I'm 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 in businessman mode. So now I'm, right. I'm I'm about 26 years old. So I didn't even know how to do this, but I learned how to make a um a order form using word using box using the boxes on word. Right. Right. This is the early 90s. So right, early 90s, yeah. my friend. So I, you know, I got, I got a name, uh, address, you know, phone number, amount, you know, of, of books you want, and the price. So I was selling the price around for for about eight dollars, and Nick, I started knocking on doors. I went huh. to the project, knocked on doors. Of course, a lot of people said no, but some people said some people said yes. Now the turning point came when we had a family reunion up in Boston, Massachusetts. Now it was it was also weird. I had to drive the senior citizens of my family up to Boston in a fifteen passenger van. So I was about what twenty six years old. And um, everybody else in the van, Nick was sixty and above. <laughs> I kid you wow. not. I mean, they, so I had I had about fourteen uh, senior citizens in, in, in the in the van, and so normally I I wouldn't have done it, but they needed a driver, so I went. Nick, I'm so glad I did that because when I went, I didn't realize that they were having what they call a talent night for my family because we had we had the family union at some hotel uh, in Copley Square in Boston. And so yeah, it was a dress up thing. It was a very nice thing, right? And someone someone said, someone told um someone the head of the families that I was writing a book. And you know, I'm and so it takes some somebody asked me, Well, you want to speak about it? Now mind you, I stutter. I'm like, oh man, I'm you know, I stutter. I don't really. they said, Well, just just talk, tell what you're doing. You know, just at least you could do that. I said, Okay. Nick, why did I do that? I got up there and told what I did, and for some reason I had Order forms with me now, but it wasn't order. But I was gonna just like take take a few orders if I could. I had order forms with me. I made the announcement of what I was doing and that the book would be published sometime in November. I sold three hundred copies. I took uh, three hundred orders. So I, I was good from there. And then once I my church people got involved and some people I, now the momentum is swinging. All told, I sold nine hundred and seventy five copies within like a three or four month span. Right. So you lived up to your, your end of the agreement with the uh, publisher. And then and things actually get better. You you were later recognized in, in President Bill Clinton's writer corps in 1993. Yeah. Yes, I got uh man, I got I got best best new member of the year. I became a um 
bestseller with the African-American market for young adults. And I, th- I think I was on that list for like maybe two or three years. Um, I got radio interviews, TV interviews. I mean, it, it was, it was, it was things, things were cooking. And this was in the early nineties, Nick. And the momentum just kept going and kept going and kept going and kept going and kept going. What's the pause for a second? If somebody's listening, I want them to understand, like if, if, if you were on an elevator with somebody and you were trying to tell them what the books are about, what would you say? And you only got, you know, 30 seconds or so to tell them. It's about, especially with, with educators, it's about SEL, social emotional learning. It's about making choices. Uh, it's about coming of age uh, as young people um, about and about making choices on what you should do and what not to do. And I do it in a nice, easy to read form. Um, very good for people who don't like reading. And, cause I, and the reason why I say that because a lot, a lot of young people will tell me they don't like reading books, but they can put my book down because the way it speaks. So it's an easy flow, um, easy rhythm, and it's centered on sports. So basketball, the, 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 the main stars are basketball players. So that helps with that automatically, especially with young people. How have you witnessed, I guess, the young adult fiction market, um, which I guess you could say, I know you say the book's for everybody, but introducing these more black and brown faces into these books. Have you seen that grow a lot since the nineties? Um, it ebbed and flowed. Uh, I think it started to grow. And then the competition came when you had the cell phones and these games and social media, which distracts even adults from doing certain things that they need to do. So I've seen it grow, but I've seen it wane. And right now my concern, Nick is the literacy uh, uh, proficiency of young, particularly black males, is really at a. I'm a I don't want to say all time low, but it's very low. And what was hurting again when I say social media? If you look at the way people text, the way they, they chat, the way they do certain things on social media, they and too and unfortunately, young people don't have muscle memory. I mean, their muscle memory is one way where if they type in the word "you" with just a letter. They'll do that mm-hmm. on a regular document because they don't know the difference, and so. The rate of literacy is really, really low and poor, and to the point to where the collective part of America, education-wise, is that we're, we're really down. If you look at from where we are with other countries, we're down. But when you're looking at the minority uh, population that that where literacy is not really pushed upon them, that's really hurting because as they grow, they become less interested in writing because they don't think it's important. But then what happens is when they age out of schools. Then they have nowhere to go, and and you if you notice if, if you look look at statistics, too many of them um, that got arrested or they're in, in prison or what have you, you'll find that they may have a third or fourth grade reading level, but yet they graduate high school, right? Yeah, or even the tenth, tenth, eleventh grade and dropped out. And so to me, we're and I say this in all honesty, we're in a dangerous position right now with the collective consciousness of literacy, because if our young boys and girls cannot read and write properly, they won't be able to get a job. They won't be able to function. And then let's be honest, reading does a lot more than just give you information. They have a lot of cognitive benefits to reading from reducing stress, improving your memory, uh, including uh, it gives you confidence. I mean, there are just a lot of things that literacy actually does for the brain, but technology is sort of putting a shade on that, if you would, or, or, or it's putting yeah, it's, it's it's kind of blinding a lot of that until young men and women get to a certain point where they're at the fork in the road and they can't do anything because they don't have the skills required to do it. What's the feedback that you've received from whether it be educators or students um, as they kind of work through 
reading your series? Um, the, the one thing I, I, I sort of mentioned it before in passing, um, when young men and women read the book, especially from inner city, they don't normally read books, but they couldn't put my book down. And I, I've, got, I've, I've got parents that even tell me the same thing because of the way the book is written and how it speaks to them. So now I didn't know anything about social emotional lear- social emotional learning back then because that wasn't a, wasn't a thought up topic. But mm-hmm. there's a lot of that in there. Um, a lot a lot of my book, a lot of parts of the book is designed to give you confidence. It's, de- it's designed to show you what commitment is. It's designed to show you what courage is all about. It's designed to show you how being consistent, being consistent is all about. It's also designed to show you how being composed is all about. And from that, th- those those letters, I, those words I just said, I just said they're all begin with the le- word C. I mean, I'm sorry, yeah, the uh, the, the letter C. I, I use that as a platform what I call the vitamin C's to success, and confidence being the first one and the, the chief among them because. Too many, you'll find too many of our young people actually grew up in life not even knowing what confidence is. And if you don't have confidence to do certain things, you won't do it because you don't think you can do it. And so you have, how many people are living life without living their dreams, you know what I mean, or, or pursuing their gifts to the, to the max? And that's a, that, to me, you're hurting not just yourself, but you're hurting society because let's be honest, Nick. We all feed off one another because of their gifts and their talents. Whether you play basketball, whether you sing, whether you teach, whether you whether you mentor. I mean, whatever it is your gift is, as you share it, you make someone else better or make someone else happy or give someone else hope. But when you let your your dreams go to the grave with you, then everybody's being robbed. Again, the uh, the books in the series are My Friend, My Hero. Looks like there's uh, He Was My Hero too. Uh, a hopeful hero, and then hoop hero. You got another one in you that you're going to be writing. Um, don't it, don't tempt me. It, 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 it was, it's funny, Nick. Each book has a cliffhanger of some magnitude to it, right? Mm-hmm. Even the fourth one, I kind of uh, give. Uh, I crack. The, I leave the door cracked a little bit. Uh, but now, w- what I wanted to do too with that, you just mentioned those books. Books is I put a full curriculum component with those books. And uh, and I mean, I went really hard with this, Nick, because I, I was seeing how the book was being entertained. I mean, being entertaining to other to people and even empowering. And I figured, why I have this audience sort of in my hand, if you would, why not? not even though even though I have essay questions in the back of the book, if I want to get these young men and women to get better with the X's and O's of life, you know, reading and writing and known vocabulary words and different things of that nature, why not put a curriculum component to it? So I actually hired a curriculum specialist and I work I close with her. Her name is Katrina Williams out of Alabama. And she um really put together put together a really, really powerful curriculum component where we have a student workbook, or we call it a guidebook, a teacher's edition with the answers and so forth to it. Uh also a pretest to where we can uh test the young men and women aptitude wise to see where they are. And then we have a unit assessment to where they can was well, after test, if you would, after they've done they've gone through the paces of the curriculum, the book and so forth and so on, they can have a unit assessment to see where they are overall, to see how much they've grown. That's great. Where where can you find all that? Is that in the book or is that separate? No, yeah, yeah, yeah. Those books are separate. Gotcha. Yeah, I mean the, the yeah, the curriculum component is totally separate, but it's the same same name of the each book. So gotcha. each book has its own curriculum component. And right now I'm, I'm selling them through me, uh, through my website. Um but the books, of course, you can get anywhere. Anywhere books are sold. Uh it is Amazon, online. It, yeah, it, yeah, your website's the heroebookseries.com, is that right? Yes. Yes, heroebookseries.com. Great. 
Excellent. Well, uh, Gerald, we really appreciate you sharing your story with us. It is an awesome one. Uh, dating all the way back, you said to 1983, it started with a speech. Uh, that's just incredible. Well, thank you. Are you ready for our pop quiz? Yes. Yes, I'm ready. All right. First question. If students could only go to school for one subject, which subject should it be? English. What are we not teaching in school that we should be teaching? Uh, life skills in terms of um, money management, life skills, uh, um, how, how to live life as an adult. What does every child deserve? A second chance. What's the biggest challenge for today's educators? Getting young men and young women to read books. Not in a, in a, in, in a, I'm, My book is on Kindle and I have audio books as well. It's, to me, it's power in a book in a, in a book in your hand because your five senses could relate to that from touch, feel, you know, whatever your five, what our five senses are. I believe putting a, a book in your hand helps enhance that. Even the smell of a book, I think that, I, it does something to the mind. So, yeah, you're right. I, I do like the smell of a new book. Um, what's the best gift to give an educator? Oh, an <laughs> uh, educator. Mm-hmm. Best gift. Uh, well, you can't buy it, but confidence. And appreciation. Yeah, no doubt. Which teacher changed your life? Ooh, oh man, it's the husband and wife team in my older uh, my older years, Mister Mister Trotter and Mister Emilio. What they do? They, they they were English teachers. They believed in me when I came to, when I came to them to tell them I'm writing the book. They when I when I talk about believed in me and they were Italian. I mean they they they, they weren't my they wasn't my color, but the way they believed in me, Nick. I, I, I think about it, now, it brings tears in my eyes. That's great. It, it really does. And, and I, I, I want to I say Miss Miss Jordan. She's she's left her. She's deceased now. Even though she used to kick me out of her class because I was a bad boy, she loved me still. It, because she kicked me out of the class, but she didn't send me to the principal where I could have got suspended. She just told me to leave her class. <laughs> but but Nick, she believed in me and she just wanted me to get my head on right. And she was so happy that when my book got published, I, went, I came back to the school. She was in tears, man. And she gave me the biggest hug. I love that story. That's great. Um, and last question, pen or pencil? Oh, pen, because I, I, I can run out of ink and, and just replace it. You know, it, let, the lead pencil, man, I just, once that thing breaks, it's a wrap. <laughs> Again, it's the uh, Hero Book Series. You're listening to uh, Gerald Hoover. Uh, Gerald, we appreciate you joining us on Class Dismissed. Thank you so much. And it, it was an honor to be here, man, my friend. I really appreciate it. That's going to do it for this episode of Class Dismissed. If you want to send us an idea or comment, remember you can always email us at info at classdismissedpodcast.com or tweet us at classdismissed. We're here to support educators, but we need your support as well. So please subscribe to the show. And we'd also appreciate it if you could leave us a five-star review on iTunes. On behalf of all the good people working at School Status and Christina, representing all those educators out there, thank you for listening. I'm Nick Ortigo, and I'll talk with you next week. Class dismissed.